Well, hello and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you again. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, here as always with my very good friend, thoughtful colleague, uh, seminarian, father, husband, Robert Hassler, who is munching uh, on goldfish. Uh, this is a this is a a medley of nuts and raisins and seeds. Nuts and raisins and seeds. Okay, I ask goldfish. Clearly, I was reading it because I was I was munching on some goldfish just a second ago. So I thought there may have been some kind of you know brainwave thing that was moving, uh, like they say twins have or or something like. But clearly not. Yeah, we usually have that kind of connection, but I guess not today with goldfish. Yeah, we'll have to put this in the L column. A lot of W's. You know, a lot of check marks in the W column, but uh, we got one in the L for sure. So uh, we're, we're glad to be back with you. It's summer, which means that ministry for us at Ministry of State is moving at full speed. We have General Assembly coming up in a couple of weeks, which Robert has been working tire, tirelessly at to get everything together and operated for a couple different uh, um, seminars that we're involved with. So excited about that. Super thankful for all the work that he's putting in there, uh, making sure everything happens. Um, we have a Thursday night gathering every other Thursday called Theology on Tap. Where we're meeting at Hawk and Dove to discuss the truths of the Christian faith. We had our first one last Thursday, which was really exciting, really fun to hear people's thoughts on. Uh, we actually went ahead and tackled the complicated issue of um, Arminianism versus uh, Calvinism, but more of the conversation of how does election and free will work to kind of a historical overview and then some theological understanding of that. That was fun. It was good to hear people kind of challenge and, and ask really good questions and actually had one person bring up Molinism, uh, which was really fun to hear someone bring that up. And then we have Commons happening this summer. So Commons is our program for interns on the Hill. If you know of anybody who'd like to be involved, send me an email, will at ministry state.org. Would love to get connected with them. Chuck Garriott, our executive director, shared um, last night and had some really great words of wisdom for the people there. His wife, Debbie, made the lasagna, which was fantastic. And these homemade brownies that were just to die for. So a lot's going on. Uh, on a personal note, I took my first, uh, well, I took my theological exam for ordination on Monday night. And How'd I go? Holy smokes, Robert. Uh, I don't know how it went other than it took over six hours and was like, uh, anyways, I'll spare all the details. I looked at like how much I had typed and everything. I am glad to have that behind me and then we'll go before the committee in a couple of weeks and talk about it a little more. But, you know, there, there's a lot going on, a lot of good things. And, and amidst all of this, uh, there are some areas going on outside of ministry, say the PCA, but a part of Christendom broadly in America, and that is the state of Christian education. And so um, Robert and I wanted to have a little conversation about Christian education, uh, what it is, why it's important, um, what we see changing in some institutions. You know, I come from a, I was homeschooled. So like the ultimate private school experience from, oh, yeah. from kindergarten through eighth grade, then went to public high school and then went to public university at uh, the Texas A&M University uh, and then went back to private school, obviously for seminary. But uh, I mean, college has a different intent, I think, and has a different um, shaping power when you're talking about uh, university, public or private. And so, Robert, wanted to kick it over to you and see, you know, what have you been seeing? And also, I mean, you went to Hillsdale, um, which falls in like an interesting position in, in the Christian university world. 
right or classically a uh, classical style education classically liberal education versus more of an explicitly private christian university but maybe you can parse that out and clarify that for me yeah it's yeah so i, I did i graduated from hillsdale in 2015 and uh as it became the sort of the center of a little bit of twitter controversy as of late um uh, anthony bradley on on twitter uh, was pushing back against its uh, identity as a Christian college. And it took the work of some folks on Twitter who are from Hillsdale, teach at Hillsdale, or at least familiar with Hillsdale, uh, to in fact tell him that he was incorrect, that Hillsdale is a Christian college. Um, but it, it's not a Christian college, or I should say it's not an evangelical college. It's not a uh, a college in the same model as a Wheaton um, or a Grove City in that it doesn't have, uh, while, it, while it is a, a Christian college, an explicitly Christian college in its, in its mission statement, uh, it does not require chapel hours and it does not require an, uh, a statement of, a written statement of faith by its students. And so it really, that conversation sort of opened up a, a bigger question that I've been interested in uh, for a while now, which is about the state of Christian education in America because it really opened the question of well, what is Christian education? What, what properly can be called Christian education? Does you, do you have to require chapel hours for it to be a Christian college? Do you need to have a written statement of faith? Does your, does your college need to have a confessional standard that it holds its students and faculty to? Um, Hillsdale doesn't have uh, necessarily any of those things. Um, it does require a, a, a robust Christian faith to teach there um, uh, and to be a member of, of its of its community, um, but that's not uh, uh, formalized in a statement of faith that students are required to sign or anything like that. Um, and so I think, you know, it's also a Christian college. I would absolutely say it is. Um, I've, I would say that they're they're correct in that in the way that they describe themselves. But it's interesting that a lot of uh, folks that come from other evangelical colleges disagree. So, so with that, I mean, if we're going to include Hillsdale then in the broader consortium of Christian universities and colleges, while not holding to uh, certain belief requirements for its students, uh, and then we, so, but we'll also include schools like Biola, we'll like Messiah College, will include Grove City and Wheaton, not in that particular order. We are not placing an order of importance. And, and I'd say coming as a public schools student into the private school interaction, it is great to hear the uh, rivalry and kind of the incendiary language that is used, you know, those infernal people over at Wheaton or at Grove City who are there. Great college. Well, okay. So, so um, with that, with that being the case, I want to say also R.R. Reno, a friend sent me an editorial that he wrote in the Washington Journal, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal, saying that he no longer was hiring people from Ivy Leagues. Um, and he was explained conversations with people, but he preferred to hire people uh, from maybe either like public schools or from more elite private institutions. And of course, as he's a Roman Catholic, he mentions Roman Catholic universities in the United States that he would prefer to hire people from. But you know, with, without being negative, we'll just be more positive here. What are, in your mind, the benefits to a Christian university uh, in its ideal sense? Like when it's doing its job well, 
what do you think it trains its students to do? Yeah, well, you know, this is really an interesting question because it, it goes back to, you know, what was the original intention behind Christian education? I mean, and I think it's important to recognize that it predates, you know, the, the 70s when, when a lot of Christian schools sort of opened up and opened, opened their doors to students, um, and at least in America, that, you know, the original purpose of education or, or why the church was invested in it was to um, make good churchmen. I mean, that, that was really the goal, right? It was to, and that included things like studies in law and science and um, all kinds of things like that. And so I would argue that what makes a, a Christian education in its ideal sense is how closely aligned it is uh, to those original purposes uh, that the church cared about education in the first place, all the way back to the Middle Ages. Um, and in some ways, I'm concerned by the state of Christian higher education in particular, because it seems to sort of be a Christianized version of the uh, biggest problem with like secular public institutions. It's sort of, um, uh, we'll take the, the model of big vocational licensing schools and we'll sort of sprinkle some Jesus on top of it. Um, and that to me is, is an insufficient model for education, particularly Christian education, because um, we're not really doing the thing that, that distinguishes Christian education in that it is, it, it is forming good, uh, churchmen and church women that are uh, prepared and equipped with uh, the, the best of our religious heritage, and then sort of commissioned then to go off into the world to do whatever um, they are called into doing, whether that's medicine or law or business um, or ministry. And uh, I think so far as that Christian education is becoming more and more aligned to vocational licensing you know, where you get your, your, your four degree certificate so you can go off and um, uh, basically, you know, have the same education that, that anybody else could get at a, a, a public school doesn't seem to be very worthwhile to me uh, or, or even differentiated in such a way that it makes it competitive in the market that is higher ed in America. You're, you're talking about medicine law, business engineering. It reminds me of uh, Professor Keating's line, medicine law, business engineering. <laughs> These are all noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life, but poetry, beauty, <laughs> romance, love, these are the things that we stay alive for. And, you know, he goes on from there. And uh, Charles Taylor in his little book, uh, The Ethics of Authenticity, talks about the um, one of the differences that has changed the modern world in that when it comes to philosophy or ethics, um, unless you can show the immediate affect the immediate good of something, then it doesn't have value. And, and unless there is like a true utilitarian pragmatic way, different things, but uh, you know, uh, that immediate utility, uh, and unless it doesn't have some practical usage, then it, it, it's hard to imagine why one should do it. Uh, and also makes me think of a quote by a Russian philosopher who talks about modern activism uh, which is actually very not concerned with the now so much as whatever it can accomplish in the future, which means that there's no contemplation involved. And I think we see a lot of that going on where there's this strong, uh, you know, when you, when you shift things to just like the um, like vocational training, 
without having any kind of contemplative philosophical reflection in things like looking at the bigger ideas behind things and understanding its place we we get very pulled along by the future uh while ignoring the past and the present uh which which i mean gosh this opens so many things it, it's somewhat anti-culture and that there is no build upon there there's always just a restructuring of things that is occurring um that and I think that that's an issue. Um, well, to to just add to that, I mean, you know, to be trained in what is good, true, and beautiful, uh, over and against sort of like here's the stuff you need to know to pass your series seven. Um, let's kind of take two drastic different approaches there to, to education. You know, there's like what you said. There's this there's this stigmatizing that happens it says oh like the liberal arts they're not practical like you can't get a you know what kind of job you can't get a philosophy job um we killed the last one and yeah. about 400 <laughs> bc we made sure that we put a stop to uh exactly but you know the the president of my own modern hillsdale college uh which of course i'm biased towards so i'm gonna probably reference it quite a few times in this episode so forgive me but um he did an interview one time on this exact same question about sort of the practicality of the liberal arts. And, and he pointed to, you know, the way that the economy is going and the jobs that are being created are, are mostly in uh, computers, computer science, learning to code is, is a big thing that people throw out as sort of like jobs in the future. And what, what he said in that interview, which I thought was really good, which is to sort of demonstrate the practicality of, of the liberal arts. A college can teach you how to code. It can teach you binary code. It can teach you, you know, how to do it on the computer, blah, blah, blah. But the liberal arts teach you, you know, what you should code and what, you, and more importantly, what you should not code, right? These are questions of, of morality, of ethics. Um, and those are incredibly practical. I mean, we did a whole episode about bioethics um, a while back. And, and in that episode, I sort of point to a similar phenomenon that, you know, in, in science where you see, you know, horrible, gross experimentations that we were talking about there about sort of mixing human DNA with, um, with other animals, and, you know, that's a perfect example of, you know, some, those brilliant scientists were somewhere along taught like how to do these things. And that's, that's incredible and wonderful, but they obviously lacked the education of, you know, what, sh what should we be doing in science versus what we should not be doing. And that's a question of ethics and morals, which is why the liberal arts are inherently practical. I mean, th that has absolute immediate bearing on what is going on in these fields today. Well, there's that clip. Uh, that's been viewed well over a million times already where John Stewart is on Colbert and, you know, he's doing his antics. And one of the things is he points out that um, look, not anti-science, but without ethics, without bioethics, science will do whatever uh, it wants and whatever is possible might does in fact make right in that, in that world. And that's a very frightening thing when we've seen uh, you don't have to look at even contemporary stuff. You can look back throughout history and see a lot of a lot of evidences of mistakes and ethical errors. To bring it back to us, I went to Texas A&M University, which is Texas Agricultural and Mechanical University College of Texas Original. And did you get an agricultural and? Uh... So that's that's my next point. What I'm about to say is, I went there and I studied philosophy, which I. I think there were a hundred philosophy majors at any one. I mean, it's a, it's a school of 50,000 people and there may have been 
250 philosophy majors at any one time in that school. Tiny. Nobody cared. More people were confused as to what I what I was studying than anything else, which I think was good for me, actually. Uh, and for me, one of the things that was helpful is that I was studying, I was reading Socrates and Hume and Hegel, Kierkegaard, you know, uh, 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 Van and Wagon, for example, contemporary. Um, but my friends were all studying business and engineering and biology. And it was very, very helpful for me because uh, I, I can get lost in the clouds a little bit sometimes. You know, I can, I can maybe float off uh, and wonder things. But to have friends who were looking at more immediate things helped kind of bring me down. And I hope there's some kind of push and pull there with people who were studying more of the like business and engineering side of things um, and philosophy, we can kind of teach each other and, and help train each other and show us, show each other the value and other things. Cause I mean, philosophers are notorious. I mean, Thales, for example, one of the pre-Socratics, there's a story about him falling into a well because he wasn't paying attention to where he was walking. So from the very beginning, there's been a history of at least of the Greek philosophers of that. I don't know if, but you, Robert, went to Hillsdale, but did not study a liberal arts major. And so tell me a little bit about that. And, and I think the practical thing is this, for those of people who are listening, you know, one of the things is like, most people don't study liberal arts and that's okay. There is a value to them though. Most of us have jobs where we're, we're we have, we have uh, are doing sales or, you know, real estate or um, investing teaching, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and there's things that we have to do, but there's also the importance of caring for these, these liberal arts. And so I kind of wanted to hear about your experience and how you think those can work together. Yeah. Well, so it's funny, you, you know, you went to a big, uh, public university and studied philosophy. And then I went to a little private school and studied finance. I mean, it's just like sort of like complete opposites. Um, but I think it, it's, you know, I chose Hillsdale because I wanted a liberal arts education. I wanted to get a well-rounded education where I would be required to take classes in politics and history and English and science and math um, on top of uh, my major, which was finance. And I kind of assumed I would go into to banking just like my father did. And so that's why I chose Hillsdale so I could get the best of both of those things. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that through my liberal arts education, I learned uh, in my interviews with banks that I was not gonna be a banker. And I knew that I was not gonna be a banker because of what I had learned about what I believed to be good, true, and beautiful. And uh, did not think that I could uh, ultimately pursue those things in a vocation um, where as far as I could tell, you know, those things were essentially uh, for the most part ignored or, or discounted. Um, and so I, I just, so in, in some ways, that was what my education was, was teaching me kind of what I was not going to do. Um, I, I think, but, but, to, but I had plenty of, of friends who did go into business and did go into finance or go into banking. And what I think is, is great is that um, through their liberal arts education, being able to enter into those vocational fields and uh, navigate as somebody uh, who is uh, approaching circumstances and situations uh, and trying to pursue um, uh, the, the ultimate ends of man through those vocations. And what's interesting is that the, the language is not all that dissimilar that I often hear 
from Christians who speak about Christians in vocation, um, in that uh, we uh, are trying to, the best of sort of vocational training in churches and in, in Christian ministries, uh, like what Ministry of the State does in, in government services, is to try to, you know, help Christians and equip them with the tools they need uh, to navigate their vocations uh, and to, you know, be uh, salt and light in, in the offices that the Lord has called them to. Uh, I think that, you know, the liberal arts has a similar sort of mission. Uh, you know, the best of liberal arts educations and institutions have the same sort of mission and uh, in that they, they want to send people into all sorts of fields um, with the tools and resources they need uh, in order to pursue the good, true, and beautiful uh, in those places. And I think that's really important. There's some complications when we, when we start deciding, though, um, sort of that balance, that relationship. Because sometimes I think what we, we end up doing, uh, particularly uh, in sort of Christian vocational training, uh, is we put such an emphasis on the vocation and the job uh, that we sort of miss what the, old, what the end of those vocations actually are. Yeah, man, I hear you. The, um, you know, I, I'm envious in a lot of ways in the education that you received at Hillsdale versus um, mine. I, in some ways, I think yours is, they, they, it has a better curriculum, um, more focused to individuals. I think that's one of the big advantages of a uh, Christian education, a Christian university or college is um, when done well to emphasize and really major in the majors. And you mentioned your other friends who worked in, uh, who work in finance or banking or politics now, and a lot of, a lot of friends who are the same way, you know, they work in investment banking or private equity. And they too are concerned with how do they live well? How do they live the good life? That's been a question for man for a very, very long time. And as, as pastors, as ministers, we have a, a very real calling to make sure that we're speaking into the day-to-day -day living of Christians in the world, in the workplace. Um, what does it mean to work ethically, to work with wisdom? That was one of the things that Chuck talked about last night at Commons, was what is wisdom in terms of our work? And there's been a big push uh, from churches recently to emphasize God's desire for our vocation, uh, God's calling on our lives in the workplace, in the marketplace. What does that mean? How are we to think about how our work connects with what God is ultimately doing, how he is uh, bringing all things back to himself? And one of the amazing things about scripture and about Christianity and its incredible flexibility, um, because I was, for example, you know, Christians hold that we are to be loyal to both God and the state. I mean, it's a super interesting uh, like dualism that's there. I don't, I'm sure it's a bad way to use that word or at least get some criticism for it. But, you know, um, we are loyal to Caesar because Christ is Lord over him and he's told us to be loyal to him. And that's very different from other, um, like Islam, for example, it's very different uh, from Islam. But, you know, we, we have these callings to do both. And, and, and in different areas, of the world being faithful to our calling will look differently. Um, if one is in like sub-Saharan Africa versus if one is in the Southern United States, they're working and what they're doing is going to be a little different, but 
what do you think are some ways that people can consider the way that um, to, to meditate on their work and what God has called them to, whether that's politics or a nonprofit or, or business, or we're thinking about specifically DC that can allow them or help them to, to kind of live faithfully in those callings? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think ultimately it's a question of, of means and ends. I mean, that's where I often see the confusion when it comes to vocational training. Um, I think that kind of going to loop back our, our previous conversation we were having about higher education and, and you know, uh, a liberal arts education versus what we would call basically vocational training. Um, we can often make the job the end, right? The, you know, you go to college so you can get the high paying job that then in turn pays, pays for your loans, which is a whole other issue when it comes to higher education. But, um, but I think we need to remember that the, the vocation, the job is a means to an end. And that's been true since Adam, that the job was a means to the end of glorifying God. Um, and that's what our vocations ultimately do. And that's who our, that's who our ultimate um, pursuit is in, in our vocations. And so um, where, you know, our job, uh, you know, lines up with, you know, glorifying God and completing our objectives, uh, whatever, or whatever those might be in our job description, then great. That's wonderful. Um, but we also need to remember that, you know, at times those things can be different. Um, so for example, uh, it may, uh, 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 there may be a lot of glory for you personally as an employee, uh, in a Senate office building, if you're able to, uh, deceive uh, another staffer of another office um, in some sort of way or to uh, use some sort of power move over them in order to uh, push through your political will, um, that may warrant you a lot of personal glory uh, in the realm of politics, but that would be disingenuous for a Christian to, be, to behave such, in such a way. And so in those cases, our our ultimate ends um, uh, cannot, or I, I should say, we need to remember what our ends are versus what the means are. And uh, I, I think that that's a, I think that's an important distinction as we think about, you know, where the Lord has called us in a certain vocational callings. Yeah, there's a, that's great. There's such a difference um, in Christianity as it speaks to stewarding. From yeah. the very beginning, it's about stewardship, and stewardship is something that is given. And for the Christian, all of life, everything is a gift. It is given to us. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? So the rhetorical question is nothing. I have been given everything. And that changes what we do with it, how we view it. If this is ultimately going to be given back to God in the end, it changes how I treat it. I think of Corrie ten Boom. Um, she would go and speak places and she would get all kinds of praise afterwards. And um, it could easily go to her head. And so someone asked her, how do you handle that? And she said, well, every compliment that I get, I receive as a flower. And I put those flowers together in a bouquet. And at the end of the day, I lay them at the feet of Jesus and give them back to him. And there's a way that I think when we view our stewardship and our accomplishments and what we're called to do, we view it as something that we receive and that we steward and put together and then give it back to Jesus. And it's a reminder, uh, 
Eugene Peterson talks about this so well when he's commenting on Psalm 122 and what it means to be a servant because steward stewardship implies servanthood to someone who is greater. And in that service, in that servant orientation, we look up to God. We ultimately uh, uh, are, are looking up to him and putting ourselves under him and are serving the world um, through where he has placed us. That involves so many things. Um, that involves, uh, you know, being honest, having a good reputation, uh, being excellent, and building relationships with people. Not just being the office as, like you said, an end uh, or just a means to an end, but viewing the people there as an opportunity to be salt and light, to to love and care for them and view them as more than human resources, to view them as human beings, to view them as the image of God and. You know, as we talk about what Christian universities can do in this, it is that there are a treasure trove of resources to whether that's a great books curriculum, um, whether that's a course on ethics, whether that is reading deeply from the wells of theology and philosophy, whether you talk about Cicero on friendship, just reading Augustine and his reflections on why he stole the pears and what he thinks about friendship as a in light of that. There are so many, there are so many important things for the Christian to look at and that are immediately applicable to their life. When right after college, I went from, you know, philosophy to working in the oil field. And, you know, I actually found it incredibly useful for what I was doing. I was I'm not, you know, I wasn't doing petroleum engineering. I was doing very blue collar work. So it, you didn't have to have a degree to do it. You probably just needed a high school education. So, but what I did find with, with my philosophy training was that it helped me understand the people that I was around a little better and engage with them and worldviews that were present and maybe be a little more empathetic to them. I think um, when I was reading A&M's a while ago, why, you know, what is the importance of history? One of the importance of history is empathy that we get when we can empathize and learn. So um, I hope that this has been a, a helpful conversation to think about, you know, why it is important to read deeply. Um, when I asked Sinclair Ferguson one time what I should do in seminary, he said, read, mm. basically read everything. And he said, read John Owens. And I said, what should I read? And he said, all 16 volumes. <laughs> and, uh, but not all of us have time to do that. Of course, uh, we have families, we have jobs, but we do have each other and we do have pastors and we need to go to them um, to not just view that as either a therapy session or a how to, but to help coach and train and instruct. Um, you know, if you have a batter who is constantly um, striking out, swinging at high pitches, you don't teach them how to put the bat a little higher when they're swinging. You teach them better mechanics. You teach them how to stand. You teach them how to hold the bat. You teach them what to look for, how to watch the spin and how to lay off the high speed. Why? Because then the pitcher makes a correction. Then you have to teach them how to do the low. And then, so you have, you know, all these things, but the point is you train the mechanics and the basics that they can learn. We can learn on our own how to go out and do things. Yeah. I think you, you nailed it on the head where, with that metaphor and that um, one of the roles, I guess you could say of a pastor is to inspire lifelong learners in the pews and particular lifelong learners uh, of scripture um, and of discipleship. I mean, that, that is, that is the goal. I'm reading all these early church fathers about you know, generational differences between the old and the young. And the thing that keeps coming over and over about the old uh, folks that are in the church and why we should listen to them 
is because they've experienced more. They've, they've learned it and they've, they've lived it. And through that experience, they have stuff to teach uh, the younger generations. And I think, you know, that is a lifelong process that doesn't come after four years in a certificate. It comes after, you know, long, long years um, and, and uh, of, of constantly growing closer to Christ. And that's where, who is really the source and the fount of knowledge and truth. Great place. Yeah. Let's, let's end it here. Let's, let's, uh, and I think one thing we're saying is that we're not talking about education qua armchair thinkers. This is how do we go out in the world and live imaginatively and excitedly. And whether that's from lament or praise, exultation, um, being in the pews, being at the bar, you know, at work, at home, whatever, you know, how can our thinking enhance that? So, um, and our, our, our living. So Robert, thanks so much for your thoughts. Uh, great to be with you guys again. Uh, Robert Hassel, you can follow him on Twitter at RD Hassel. You can follow me on Twitter at Stockdale Will. Check out our website at ministryofstate.org. If you haven't, um, if you haven't liked us or left a review, please do so on the uh, Apple Podcasts uh, page. And so we will be with you guys again next week. <laughs>